Send Me to Sleep is a production of Slumber Studios and is made possible thanks to the generous support of our sponsors and premium members. If you'd like to listen ad-free, you can try out Premium free for seven days by following the link in the episode notes. Now, we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Part 2, Chapters 19 and 20. In the previous chapters, the Nautilus had lost a crewmate after a perilous battle with a giant cuttlefish. In the following chapters, the Nautilus must weather a powerful storm. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 19 The Gulf Stream This terrible scene of the 20th of April none of us can ever forget. I have written it under the influence of violent emotion. Since then, I have revised the recital. I have read it to Concier and to the Canadian. They found it exact as to the facts, but insufficient as to the effect. To paint such pictures, one must have the pen of the most illustrious of our poets, the author of The Toilers of the Deep. I have said that Captain Nemo wept whilst watching the waves. His grief was great. It was the second companion he had lost since our arrival on board. And what a death. That friend, crushed, stifled, bruised by the dreadful arm of the pulp, pounded by its iron jaws, would not rest with his comrades in the peaceful coral cemetery. In the midst of the struggle, it was the despairing cry uttered by the unfortunate man that had torn my heart. The poor Frenchman, forgetting his conventional language, 
had taken to his own mother tongue to utter a last appeal. Amongst the crew of the Nautilus, associated with the body and soul of the captain, recoiling like him from all contact with men, I had a fellow countryman. Did he alone represent France in this mysterious association, evidently composed of individuals of diverse nationalities? It was one of these insoluble problems that rose up unceasingly before my mind. Captain Nemo entered his room, and I saw him no more for some time. But that he was sad and irresolute, I could see by the vessel, of which he was the soul, and which received all his impressions. The Nautilus did not keep on its settled course. It floated about like a corpse at the will of the waves. It went at random. He could not tear himself away from the scene of the last struggle, from this sea that had devoured one of his men. Ten days passed thus. It was not until the first of May that the Nautilus resumed its northernly course, after having sighted the Bahamas at the mouth of the Bahama Canal. We were then following the current from the largest river to the sea, that has its banks, its fish, and its proper temperatures. I mean the Gulf Stream. It is really a river that flows freely to the middle of the Atlantic, and whose waters do not mix with the ocean waters. It is a salt river, saltier than the surrounding sea. Its mean depth is fifteen hundred fathoms, its mean breadth ten miles. In certain places, the current flows with the speed of two miles and a half an hour. The body of its waters is more considerable than that of all the rivers in the globe. It was on this ocean river that the Nautilus then sailed. I must add that, during the night, the phosphorescent waters of the Gulf Stream rivaled the electric power of our watchlight, especially in the stormy weather that threatened us so frequently. May 8th, we were still crossing Cape Hatteras, at the height of the North Carolina. The width of the Gulf Stream there is 75 miles, and its depth... 210 yards. The Nautilus still went at random. All supervision seemed abandoned. I thought that, under these circumstances, escape would be possible. Indeed, the inhabited shores offered anywhere an easy refuge. 
The sea was incessantly ploughed by the steamers that ply between New York or Boston and the Gulf of Mexico, and overrun day and night by the little schooners coasting about the several parts of the American coast. We could hope to be picked up. It was a favourable opportunity, notwithstanding the thirty miles that separated the Nautilus from the coast of the Union. One unfortunate circumstance thwarted the Canadians' plans. The weather was very bad. We were nearing those shores where tempests are so frequent, that country of waterspouts and cyclones actually engendered by the current of the Gulf Stream. To tempt the sea in a frail boat was certain destruction. Ned Land owned this to himself. He fretted, seized with nostalgia that flight only could cure. Master, he said that day to me, this must come to an end. I must make a clean breast of it. This Nemo is leaving land and going up to the north but I declare to you that I have had enough of the South Pole, and I will not follow him to the North. What is to be done, Ned, since flight is impracticable just now? We must speak to the captain, said he. You said nothing when we were in your native seas. I will speak, now we are in mine. When I think that before long the Nautilus will be by Nova Scotia, and that there, near Newfoundland, is a large bay, and into that bay St. Lawrence empties itself, and that the St. Lawrence is my river, the river by Quebec, my native town. When I think of this, I feel furious. It makes my hair stand on end. Sir, I would rather throw myself into the sea. I will not stay here. I am stifled. The Canadian was evidently losing all patience. His vigorous nature could not stand this prolonged imprisonment. His face altered daily. His temper became more surly. I knew what he must suffer, for I was seized with homesickness myself. Nearly seven months had passed without our having any news from land. Captain Nemo's isolation, his altered spirits, especially since the flight with the pulps, his tankaturity, all made me view things in a different light. Well, sir, said Ned, seeing I did not reply. Well, Ned, do you wish me to ask Captain Nemo his intentions concerning us? Yes, sir, although he has already made them known. Yes, I wish it settled finally, 
Speak for me, in my name only, if you like. But I so seldom meet him. He avoids me. That is all the more reason for you to go see him. I went to my room. From thence I meant to go to Captain Nemo's. It would not do to let this opportunity of meeting him slip. I knocked at the door. No answer. I knocked again, then turned the handle. The door opened. I went in. The captain was there, bending over his work table. He had not heard me. Resolved not to go without having spoken, I approached him. He raised his head quickly, frowned, and said roughly, You here, what do you want? To speak to you, Captain. But I am busy, sir. I am working. I leave you at liberty to shut yourself up. Cannot I be allowed the same? This reception was not encouraging, but I was determined to hear and answer everything. Sir, I said coldly, I have to speak to you on a matter that admits of no delay. What is that, sir? He replied, ironically. Have you discovered something that has escaped me? Or has the sea delivered up any new secrets? We were at cross purposes. But, before I could reply, he showed me an open manuscript on his table and said, in a more serious tone, Here, Monsieur Arnax, is a manuscript written in several languages. It contains the sum of my studies of the sea, and, if it please God, it shall not perish with me. This manuscript, signed with my name, complete with the history of my life, will be shut up in a little floating case. The last survivor of all of us on board the Nautilus will throw this case into the sea and it will go whither it is borne by the waves. This man's name, his history written by himself, his mystery would then be revealed some day. Captain, I said, I can but approve of the idea that makes you act thus. The result of your studies must not be lost. But the means you employ seem to me to be primitive. Who knows where the wind will carry the case, and in whose hands it will fall? Could you not use some other means? Could not you, or one of your... Never, sir, he said, hastily to interrupt me. But I and my companions are ready to keep this manuscript in store, and, if you will put us at liberty... At liberty, 
said the captain, rising. Yes, sir, that is the subject on which I wish to question you. For seven months we have been here on board, and I ask you today, in the name of my companions and in my own, if your intention is to keep us here always. Monsieur Arnax, I will answer you today as I did seven months ago. Whoever enters Sinautilus must never quit it. You impose actual slavery upon us. Give it what name you must. But everywhere the slave has the right to regain his liberty. Who denies you this right? Have I ever tried to chain you with an oath? He looked at me with his arms crossed. Sir, I said, to return a second time to this subject will be neither to your nor my taste. But, as we have entered upon it, let us go through with it. I repeat, it is not only myself whom it concerns. Study is to me a relief, a diversion, a passion that could make me forget everything. Like you, I am willing to live obscure in the frail hope of bequeathing one day to future time the results of my labour. But it is otherwise with Ned Land. Every man, worthy of the name, deserves some consideration. Have you thought that love of liberty, hatred of slavery, can give rise to schemes of revenge in a nature like the Canadian's? That he could think, attempt, and try? I was silenced by the captain. He rose. Whatever Ned Land thinks of, attempts, or tries, what does it matter to me? I did not seek him. It is not for my pleasure that I keep him on board. As for you, Monsieur Arnax, you are one of those who can understand everything, even silence. I have nothing more to say to you. Let this first time you have come to treat of this subject be the last. For a second time, I will not listen to you. I retired. Our situation was critical. I related my conversation to my companions. We know now, said Ned, that we can expect nothing from this man. The Nautilus is nearing Long Island. We will escape, whatever the weather may be. But the sky became more and more threatening. Symptoms of a hurricane began to manifest. The atmosphere was becoming white and misty. On the horizon, fine streaks of curious clouds were succeeded by masses of cumuli. Other low clouds passed swiftly by, 
the swollen sea rose in huge billows. The birds disappeared, with the exception of the petrel, those friends of the storm. The barometer fell sensibly and indicated an extreme extension of the vapours. The mixture of the storm glass was decomposed under the influence of the electricity that pervaded the atmosphere. The tempest burst on the 18th of May, just as the Nautilus was floating off Long Island, some miles from the port of New York. I can describe this strife of the elements, for, instead of fleeing to the depths of the sea, Captain Nemo, by an unaccountable caprice, would brave it at the surface. The wind blew from the southwest at first. Captain Nemo, during the squalls, had taken his place on the platform. He had made himself fast to prevent being washed overboard by the monstrous waves. I had hoisted myself up and made myself fast also, dividing my admiration between the tempest and this extraordinary man who was coping with it. The raging sea was swept by huge cloud drifts which were actually saturated with waves. The Nautilus, sometimes lying on its side, sometimes standing up like a mast, rolled and pitched terribly. About five o'clock, a torrent of rain fell that lulled neither sea nor wind. The hurricane blew nearly forty leagues an hour, it is under these conditions that it overturns houses, breaks iron gates, displaces twenty-four pounders. However, the Nautilus, in the midst of the tempest, confirmed the words of a clever engineer. There is no well-constructed hull that cannot defy the sea. This was not a resisting rock. It was a steel spindle, obedient and movable, without rigging or masts, that braved its fury with impunity. However, I watched these raging waves attentively. They measured fifteen feet in height, and a hundred and fifty to a hundred and seventy-five yards long, and their speed of propagation was thirty feet per second. Their bulk and power increased with the depth of the water. Such waves as these, at the Hebrides, have displayed a mass weighing eight thousand four hundred pounds. They are they which, in the tempest of December 23rd, 1864, after destroying the town of Yedo in Japan, broke the same day on the shores of America. The intensity of the tempest increased with the night. The barometer, as in 1860 at Reunion during a cyclone, 
fell seven tenths at the close of the day. I saw a large vessel pass the horizon, struggling painfully. She was trying to lie to under half steam, to keep up above the waves. It was probably one of the steamers of the line from New York to Liverpool or Havre. It soon disappeared in the gloom. At ten o'clock in the evening, the sky was on fire. The atmosphere was streaked with vivid lightning. I could not bear the brightness of it, while the captain, looking at it, seemed to envy the spirit of the tempest. A terrible noise filled the air, a complex noise made up of the howls of the crushed waves, the roaring of the wind and the claps of thunder. The wind veered suddenly to all points of the horizon, and the cyclone, rising in the east, returned after passing by the north, west, and south, in the inverse course pursued by the circular storm of the southern hemisphere. Ah, that gulf stream. It deserves its name of the King of Tempests. It is that which causes those formidable cyclones, by the difference of temperature between its air and its currents. A shower of fire had succeeded the rain. The drops of water were changed to sharp spikes. One would have thought the Captain Nemo was courting a death worthy of himself, a death by lightning. As the Nautilus, pitching dreadfully, raised its steel spur in the air, it seemed to act as a conductor, and I saw long sparks bursting from it. Crushed and without strength, I crawled to the panel, opened it, and descended to the saloon. The storm was then at its height. It was impossible to stand upright in the interior of the Nautilus. Captain Nemo came down about twelve. I heard the reservoirs filling by degrees, and the Nautilus sank slowly beneath the waves. Through the open windows in the saloon, I saw large fish, terrified, passing like phantoms in the water. Some were struck before my eyes. The Nautilus was still descending. I thought that at about eight fathoms deep we should find a calm. But no, the upper beds were too violently agitated for that. We had to seek repose at more than twenty-five fathoms in the bowels of the deep. 
But there, what quiet, what silence, what peace. Who could have told that such a hurricane had been let loose on the surface of the ocean? Chapter 20 From latitude 47 degrees 24 feet to longitude 17 degrees 28 feet. In consequence of the storm, we had been thrown eastward once more. All hope of escape on the shores of New York or St. Lawrence had faded away, and poor Ned, in despair, had isolated himself like Captain Nemo. Concier and I, however, never left each other. I said that the Nautilus had gone aside to the east. I should have said, to be more exact, the northeast. For some days, it wandered first on the surface, and then beneath it, amid those fogs so dreaded by sailors. What accidents are due to these thick fogs? What shocks upon these reefs when the wind drowns the breaking of the waves? What collisions between vessels, in spite of their warning lights, whistles and alarm bells? And the bottoms of these seas look like a field of battle where still lie all the conquered of the ocean, some old and already encrusted, others fresh and reflecting from their iron bands and copper plates the brilliancy of our lantern. On the 15th of May, we were at the extreme south of the bank of Newfoundland, this bank consists of alluvia, or large heaps of organic matter, brought either from the equator by the Gulf Stream, or from the North Pole by the countercurrent of cold water which skirts the American coast. There also are heaped up those erratic blocks which are carried along by the broken ice, and close by, a vast carnal house of mollusks, which perish here by millions. The depth of the sea is not great at Newfoundland, not more than some hundreds of fathoms, but towards the south is a depression of fifteen hundred fathoms. There the gulf stream widens. It loses some of its speed and some of its temperature, but it becomes a sea. It was on the 17th of May, about 500 miles from heart's content, at a depth of more than 1,400 fathoms, that I saw the electric cable lying on the bottom. Concier, to whom I had not mentioned it, thought at first that it was a gigantic sea serpent. 
but I undeceived the worthy fellow, and by way of consolation, related several particulars in the laying of this cable. The first one was laid in the year of 1857 and 1858. But, after transmitting about 400 telegrams, would not act any longer. In 1863, the engineers constructed another one, measuring 2,000 miles in length and weighing 4,500 tons, which was embarked on the Great Eastern. This attempt also failed. On the 25th of May, the Nautilus, being at a depth of more than 1,918 fathoms, was on the precise spot where the rupture occurred, which ruined the enterprise. It was within 638 miles of the coast of Ireland, and at half past two in the afternoon, they discovered that communication with Europe had ceased. The electricians on board resolved to cut the cable before fishing it up, and at eleven o'clock at night they had recovered the damaged part. They made another point and spliced it, and it was once more submerged. But some days after it broke again, and in the depth of the ocean could not be recaptured. The Americans, however, were not discouraged. Cyrus Field, the bold promoter of the enterprise, as he had sunk all his own fortune, set a new subscription on foot, which was at once answered, and another cable was constructed on better principles. The bundles of conducting wire were each enveloped in gutta-percha and protected by a wadding of hemp contained in a metallic covering. The Great Eastern sailed on the 13th of July, 1866. The operation worked well, but one incident occurred. Several times in unrolling the cable, they observed that nails had recently been forced into it, evidently with the motive of destroying it. Captain Anderson, the officers, and engineers consulted together, and had it posted up that, if the offender was surprised on board, he would be thrown without further trial into the sea. From that time, the criminal attempt was never repeated. On the 23rd of July, the Great Eastern was not more than 500 miles from Newfoundland when they telegraphed from Ireland the news of the armistice concluded between Prussia and Austria after Sadau. On the 27th, in the midst of heavy fogs, they reached the port of heart's content. The enterprise was successfully terminated, and for its first dispatch, young America addressed old Europe 
in these words of wisdom, so rarely understood. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. I did not expect to find the electric cable in its primitive state, such as it was on leaving the manufactory. The long serpent, covered with the remains of shells, bristling with forminiferae, was encrusted with a strong coating which served as a protection against all boring mollusks. It lay quietly sheltered from the motions of the sea and under a favourable pressure for the transmission of the electric spark which passes from Europe to America in 0.32 of a second. Doubtless this cable will last for a great length of time, for they find that the gutta percha covering it is improved by the sea water. Besides, on this level, so well chosen, the cable is never so deeply submerged as to cause it to break. The Nautilus followed it to the lowest depth, which was more than 2,212 fathoms, and there it lay without any anchorage, and then we reached the spot where the accident had taken place in 1863. The bottom of the ocean then formed a valley about a hundred miles broad, in which Mont Blanc might have been placed without its summit appearing above the water. This valley is closed at the east by a perpendicular wall more than two thousand yards high. We arrived there on the 28th of May, and the Nautilus was then not more than a hundred and twenty miles from Ireland. Was Captain Nemo going to land on the British Isles? No. To my great surprise, he made for the south, once more coming back towards European seas. In rounding the Emerald Isle, for one instant, I caught sight of Cape Clear, the light which guides the thousands of vessels leaving Glasgow or Liverpool. An important question then arose in my mind. Did the Nautilus dare entangle itself in the Manche? Ned Land, who has reappeared since we had been nearing land, did not cease to question me. How could I answer? Captain Nemo remained invisible. After having shown the Canadian a glimpse of American shores, was he going to show me the coast of France? But the Nautilus was still going southward. On the 30th of May, it passes in sight of Land's End between the extreme point of England and the Sicily Isles, which were left to starboard. If we wished to enter the Manche, he must go straight to the east. He did not do so. 
During the whole of the 31st of May, the Nautilus described a series of circles on the water, which greatly interested me. It seemed to be seeking a spot it had some trouble finding. At noon, Captain Nemo himself came to work the ship's log. He spoke no word to me, but seemed gloomier than ever. What could sadden him thus? Was it his proximity to European shores? Had he some recollections of his abandoned country? If not, what did he feel? Remorse or regret? For a long while this thought haunted my mind, and I had a kind of presentiment that before long chance would betray the captain's secret. The next day, the 1st of June, the Nautilus continued the same process. It was evidently seeking some particular spot in the ocean. Captain Nemo took the sun's altitude as he had done the day before. The sea was beautiful, the sky clear. About eight miles to the east, a large steam vessel could be discerned on the horizon. No flag fluttered from its mast, and I could not discover its nationality. Some minutes before the sun passed the meridian, Captain Nemo took his sextant and watched with great attention. The perfect rest of the water greatly helped the operation. The Nautilus was motionless. It neither rolled nor pitched. I was on the platform when the altitude was taken, and the captain pronounced these words. It is here. He turned and went below. Had he seen the vessel which was changing its course and seemed to be nearing us? I could not tell. I returned to the saloon. The panels closed. I heard the hissing of the water in the reservoirs. The Nautilus began to sink, following a vertical line, for its screw communicated no motion to it. Some minutes later, it stopped at a depth of more than 420 fathoms, resting on the ground. The luminous ceiling was darkened, then the panels were opened, and through the glass I saw the sea brilliantly illuminated by the rays of the lantern for at least half a mile round us. I looked to the port side and saw nothing but an immensity of quiet waters. But to the starboard, on the bottom, appeared a large protuberance, which at once attracted my attention. One would have thought it a ruin buried under a coating of white shells, much resembling a covering of snow. 
Upon examining the mass attentively, I could recognize the ever-thickening form of a vessel bare of its mast, which must have sunk. It certainly belonged to the past. This wreck, to be thus encrusted with the lime of the water, must already be able to count many years past at the bottom of the ocean. What was this vessel? Why did the Nautilus visit its tomb? Could it have been aught by a shipwreck which had drawn it under the water? I knew not what to think, when near me, in a slow voice, I heard Captain Nemo say, At one time, this ship was called the Marseillaise. It carried seventy-four guns and was launched in 1762. In 1778, the 13th of August, commanded by Le Pop Vertreau, it fought boldly against the Preston. In 1779, on the 4th of July, it was at the taking of Grenada with the squadron of Admiral Estaing. In 1781, on the 5th of September, it took part in the Battle of Comte de Grasse in the Chesapeake Bay. In 1794, the French Republic changed its name. On the 16th of April, in the same year, it joined the squadron of Villaret Joyeux at Brest, being entrusted with an escort of cargo of corn from America, under the command of Admiral Van Stebel. On the 11th and 12th prairial of the second year, this squadron fell with an English vessel. Sir, today is the 13th prairial, the 1st of June, 1868. It is now 74 years ago, day for day on this very spot, in latitude 47 degrees 24 feet. Longitude seventeen degrees twenty-eight feet, that this vessel, after fighting heroically, losing its three masts, with the water in its hold, and the third of its crew disabled, preferred sinking with its three hundred and fifty-six sailors to surrendering, and, nailing its colours to the poop, disappeared under the waves of the cry of. Long live the Republic. The Avenger, I exclaimed. Yes, sir, the Avenger. A good name, muttered Captain Nemo, crossing his arms.